0: Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Skye Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome back, guys. On today's show, I have the greatest privilege of interviewing Dr. Sarah Buckley. Dr. Buckley is trained as a GP with qualifications in GP obstetrics, and has been writing and lecturing to childbirth professionals and parents since 1997. She is also the author of the international best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, which is available for purchase on the PBA website. Dr. Buckley is well known for her groundbreaking report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing, the product of her ongoing interest and research on the hormones of labor and birth. Coming from a long line of GPs, she was influenced by her own experiences working in the hospital and by what she noticed with the birthing women there. Today, we chat about her own four beautiful home births, diving deep into the hormonal blueprint of labor and birth, what types of things can interrupt this hormonal flow, and how we can fill in these hormonal gaps. It gives me the greatest privilege to share with you this profoundly wise woman. Enjoy this episode, guys. Dr. Sarah Buckley, welcome to Positive Birth Australia. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Skype. I guess where I would like to start with you today is where your own journey began and your passion for physiological birth. Yeah, well, it's kind
1: of a family thing, Sky. Actually, my grandfather was a GP, like a family physician in a small country town in New Zealand. And there's family stories about him going out on horseback to attend women giving birth in the bush. And uh, my father actually went to the UK in the 50s and trained as an obstetrician over there and came back and actually worked as a GP Mm -hmm. in this small town called Whangarei in in New Zealand. Um, So it was kind of in my blood, like my dad, my childhood was often... Off at the obstetric annex. Um, And so, yeah, it was kind of in my blood, but I guess I did it a bit differently myself because. I chose to have my babies at home, my four children. And I guess I was kind of influenced by my own experiences. I did my um, obstetric or GP obstetric training in hospitals, and I noticed that women who gave birth at night or when not many people were around, including myself, mm-hmm. had a better time than when there were all kinds of people around and it was daytime and it was busy. So I noticed that, and then I had the incredible privilege of supporting two friends having babies at home. And I got to see, whoa, that's a different experience from hospitals. As well, um, and I guess um, also very influential was my beautiful sister-in-law, um, my husband's sister, Sue Lennox, who's a home birth midwife in New Zealand for um, decades. And so she was, she was kind of like, of course you're going to have your babies at home. And I remember with my first one, like getting halfway through the pregnancy and thinking, oh maybe we should actually make a choice about this and consider going to hospital. And we thought, oh no, we'll just we'll just stay at home. <laughs> and you know, I could, you know, having had that. Um, experience in hospitals I could really see where the the differences and what my experience were and what they would have been if I'd been in hospital so mm-hmm. that was very um educational and, and enlightening but also you know I had such great experiences at home um beautiful every time and things that happened at home that would have been kind of complicated in hospital like mm. actually two of my children were born um posterior like face up and you know it was a little bit challenging but it wasn't an issue at home but it would have been an issue in hospital um my son was, well, we were a little uncertain about dates, but that would have been an issue too. But um, we kind of trusted the process, did some checks, and, and everything was fine. And he came out looking a bit early, actually. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just – and that experience, I mean, I guess also not just the home birth because that's one aspect of it. But, you know, I had continuity of midwifery care. I had my own midwife. the first three babies was the same midwife so you know that trust that we built up um, was you know well you know you can look at all the research really showing that when women have continuity of midwifery care they have a better experience they're more satisfied Mm -hmm. they have lower use of interventions and also they're actually less likely to lose their babies as well so You know, that really, um, all of those experiences, it really is in my heart and in my womb, you could
0: say, that that this work comes from. So was there any pushback from your family, in particular your dad, when you told them that you were going to home birth?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, they weren't all that. They were a little bit worried about it. But what was interesting is that my dad, when he went and did his um, obstetric training in the UK in the 50s, there was still a lot of home birth happening. Um, So I think, you know, even though there was a little bit of anxiety about it, like he kind of knew that it could be okay. And the other interesting thing was that both of my parents were born at home. Um, My mum, actually, I found out subsequently was attended by her grandmother, who was like a a granny midwife around the place.
0: How special is that? Was there anything in particular that you did to prepare yourself for your home births?
1: yeah well as I said I was very lucky to have um the same midwife with my first three children you know when I met her the first time I I said to her look just treat me like any other first time mum because Mm -hmm. you know I've never been on this side before and I guess another input that I that I should mention is you know i I'd looked at what happened to women doctors who went to hospital and had births and they often got a lot of intervention and they often were frightened and, and and needed more intervention as well and I've also got a bit of a family history of you know um, things not going you know having excessive medical intervention with not such good outcomes so mm-hmm. I was kind of a little bit cautious about that um, so yeah one of my preparations was just to be be the expectant mother you know not to have any you know not to think from the other other side, really. Um, was that hard to do? Um, to be honest, it really wasn't. I was so, you know, it was such a different experience from mm. from <laughs> from looking from the outside. So, yeah, no, it wasn't that hard to do. Um, I did a lot of yoga. I was, I was very much into yoga. Um, I did a lot of yoga in my pregnancy, which I think really helped me to mm-hmm. get through the labor. Um, I, yeah, I watched my nutrition. Um, but I think, you know, the big thing was really The relationship I had with my midwife, you know, I could I could have an hour consultation with her. She'd go through everything. She'd give me her things. I'd give her my things, and it was really. No, we really had that trust and I remember it was my first baby who was a little bit early and the labor went very fast and I have such a strong memory of you know calling her up and saying, you know I think you should come and she you know she thought I was gonna be nowhere near ready and she walked in and I was pushing and just that transmission of looking in her eyes you know as she came through the door and I still remember that like I just suddenly I could relax I could trust like I felt safe Mm -hmm. and that was what allowed me to have my baby you know soon afterwards really Really was that transmission of trust that happened. So you know that one-on one relationship with my midwife was really the best preparation for for my births, yeah. I think.
0: That continuity of care. So, Dr. Buckley, you have the best-selling book *Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering*, and you're well-known for your interest and research on the hormones of labor and birth. So, I have a couple of questions to start off with. What do these hormones do to us during labor and birth? Why are they so important? And what can interfere with this hormonal flow? Yeah, well, that's. The, I guess there's several ways I can answer
1: that question. I'm just going to start with a bit of evolution, really, because it's mm-hmm. I actually studied a bit of anthropology. Anthropology at university. And it's been very helpful, you know, just to give that perspective because you know we are mammals. Mammals have mammary glands. We suckle our young, and mammals have been around for 65 million years. So that's how long human birth has been evolving for. And for 99.99999% of that time, it's been evolving in the wild. Yeah, so we've been living out of doors with no walls, like you know, um, no fences. You know, and and we've been like other mammals. We've had to make it as safe as possible so that Mother and baby survived the birth, and that's why we're all here today, right? Because all of our foremothers survived and thrived and went to have more offspring who survived and thrived. So out there in the wilderness, you know, um, it, birth is uh, tricky on lots of levels. And it's tricky because, you know, mother and baby are very vulnerable during labor and birth. And I mean, human mothers, but all mo- all mothers, right? So if you've had a baby, you know, it's not very easy to, to fight or flight during labor. If something happens, it's not easy to defend yourself against a predator. So, you know, the, the laboring female has to have the sense of feeling safe in labor. She's, got to be aware of her environment you know and that's that's worked very well for all these millions of years Um, but the thing is that when we bring that into modern settings you know we still have that incredible sensitivity and we still need to be in the most private safe and unobserved space as I call it it doesn't mean we've got to go to a cave or have our babies at home but really we've got to have this situation where we feel private and safe and if we don't then that messes with all of the hormones that I'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic. And sometimes I say, you know, the hormones that get your baby out are the same hormones that got your baby in. And hormonally, you know, it's almost identical, the processes of um, making a baby of sexual activity of orgasm actually are are equivalent to the processes of labor and birth. And then that moment of pushing your baby out with these peak levels of of hormones, you know, you've probably heard of orgasmic birth, and it's not a myth, it's actually a physiological reality, we get this huge peak of oxytocin as we push our baby out. So, you know, that's kind of a consideration I'll probably come back to. But, you know, the sort of environment you could make a baby is the perfect environment for having a baby as well. So feeling private, safe and unobserved is really, you know, the basic needs for all of the hormones to flow and um, so yeah I'll refer you to my report hormonal physiology of childbearing that goes through all of these hormonal systems but I'm going to particularly talk about oxytocin because that's where I've been um, involved in research the last uh, five years Mm -hmm. so and it's kind of a, a good example of all of the hormones really so oxytocin, you may have heard of it as the hormone of love, the hormone of connection. Um, it's kind of a feel-good hormone, hormone of relaxation and growth, a whole lot of things. But it was really discovered as tocin birth, as so a hormone that makes birth go fast. So that's true, like during labor and birth, we release oxytocin from the brain actually from the pituitary gland in the brain and during labor and birth we release it into our body and once it gets into our body it travels to the uterus uh, it finds i'll talk about this in a minute the uterine um, oxytocin receptors which are on the uterine muscle cell wall mm-hmm. and it binds to those and that causes a chemical signal to go into the cell and contract so that's our oxytocin that re- release from our brain causes the contractions of labor so it makes birth go fast but the other interesting thing, and this is really everything we've learned since that first discovery of oxytocin fast birth, is that it's also released into the brain. In fact, it's a very powerful brain chemical. It's a neuromodulator. It kind of turns up and turns down various aspects of our brain function. And that includes our um, what we call the autonomic nervous system. You could call it the automatic nervous system that controls things like our heart rate, our blood pressure, our skin temperature. So all of those things are impacted by oxytocin. Mm -hmm. But in labor and birth, we get these huge output of oxytocin, or we could say huge activity of the oxytocin system um, that in the brain, gives calm and connection so it has natural pain-relieving effects. So you can see in parallel that's happening and that's building up at the same time that the uterine contractions are building up. So it's a perfect system. It's what I call Mother Nature's superb design. The stronger your contractions, the more brain oxytocin you have to help you to deal with those contractions. Mm. And not only that, but it's also switching on the pleasure and reward centers, the dopamine parts of the brain. And what that's doing is helping the mother to feel as good as possible in the midst of that intense intensity. But critically, it's switching on the maternal circuits, the parts of her brain that she's going to use to bond with her baby. And if you think about all mammals, you know, dogs, cats, elephants, they don't go to classes to learn how to bond with their baby, right? It has to kick in straight away at birth. Otherwise, there's no species survival right so it it switches on because of this activation of the reward and pleasure centers by these oxytocin peaks during labor and then what happens and I'm sure we'll get to this later in that in the hour after birth is the mother has these huge peaks of oxytocin she meets her baby or babies for the first time and they she gets the you could say the sensory input what the babies smell like what they feel like what they look like and that kind of fires and wires in a neurological sense with those reward and pleasure centers so basically she's saying these are my babies they're a source of reward and pleasure for me and that's what's going to motivate her to give the dedicated care that every mammalian mother every mammalian baby needs and every mammalian mother gives because of this switching on of the reward and pleasure centers Mm -hmm. and it's also why that's why i talk about ecstatic birth because when you get the full dose of this reward and pleasure it really is totally ecstatic totally euphoric you'll say oh my god i could do that again you know a lot of women don't you don't want to have more babies right but you could go through the whole labor and birth because of this intense activation of the reward and pleasure centers so lots of other benefits of oxytocin it actually has anti-inflammatory antioxidant effects beneficial for the mother and labor, but also for the baby because the baby has these peaks of oxytocin. In fact, levels in the baby and the newborn baby are even higher than the mother. Mm-hmm. So there's peaks of oxytocin and the baby gives a natural pain relief like you may have heard about this. Sometimes they'll do more painful things like um, injecting the baby in the, in those first few hours after birth because the baby has this natural pain relief. But also, you know, all those processes of labor and birth, I mean, they're intense for us as the mama, right, but they're also intense for the baby because the baby's getting The baby's having this experience they've never had before. The baby's getting this intermittent lack of oxygen, hypoxia we call it. Mm -hmm. So all these stresses of labor that actually trigger the release of oxytocin in the baby's brain. And then the baby comes out with this natural pain relief, this calm and connection. It comes out already. The other thing is with oxytocin, it's actually a social hormone. It's a social affiliative hormone. So we have the mother with these peaks at birth. We have the baby with these peaks at birth. They come together. I say it's like the best first date ever. <laughs> right? they come together ready to fall in love and bond with each other and interact socially you know and that's going to be the start of bonding it's going to be the start of breastfeeding so that's mm-hmm. kind of like in a nutshell a mother naturally superb design for the oxytocin system for mothers and babies
0: yeah right wow this is already so interesting and so what can interrupt this hormonal flow obviously interventions
1: yeah so every the first thing to say is every intervention has its place right sometimes you know sometimes it's life-saving for mother and baby sometimes it's the only way for the baby to get out Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes you know mothers are really distressed in labor and an epidural is a really good form of pain relief and she can relax yeah but the trouble is all these interventions can create what what I call hormonal gaps so if you think about what we call physiological birth, like the full expression, of all of these hormones that we're talking about, that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And at the other end of the spectrum is like minimal hormones, which you know it would be like a pre-labour caesarean. The mother's had no labour; she's a bit ahead of her schedule um, to some extent. Um, and so that, those are kind of the, the spectrum. And every mother and baby is somewhere along that spectrum. But if they're not experiencing full physiology, then there's going to be a hormonal gap to some extent. And you know, some of these interventions cause hormonal gaps. So what we need to do is be aware, this is the intervention, this is the hormonal gap, and what can we do to fill it in? But we haven't quite got there yet in our clinical care. So some of the, the hormonal gaps that are kind of obvious is obviously a pre-labour caesarean. So the mother's not fully ready, the baby's not fully ready, there's not the processes of labour and birth. So that's a very big hormonal gap, right? Mm-hmm. There's a couple of other like in, um, preparations that happen, and I'm just going to go back to the... <clears throat> hormone receptor idea. So basically a hormone is a substance that's produced in one part of the body with effects in another part of the body. It has effects by binding with a receptor. And it's like putting a key into a lock. So we have the key, oxytocin, we have the lock, and, and I mentioned before it's on the outside of the uterine muscle cells. So um, oxytocin, released from the brain, travels to the uterus, finds the lock, the oxytocin receptors binds to those receptors, and it's, and it's like turning the key in the lock and that's what sends a chemical message into the mother's uterine muscle cells and that's what has them contract right mm-hmm. so part of the preparation of for labor and birth one thing we know for sure, because some of these things aren't really researched or possible to research, is that the mother's uterus has an increased number of uterine oxytocin receptors in the lead-up to labour. So that minute that she goes into labour, which is quite mysterious, you know, we don't really understand how that happens or why that happens or why it happens now, not tomorrow, right? We, there's so much we don't know about human labour. Um, so the, that moment of the physiological onset of labour, as I call it, the magical moment, um, the mother has that peak numbers of oxytocin receptors and what we've discovered through some of the research i've been involved with is that the mother actually doesn't release a lot of oxytocin her oxytocin levels aren't that high when she goes into labor but she's got this incredible sensitivity in her uterus and probably you know the rest of her body as well but those are harder things to measure right her brain we can't take a sample of the brain we can't take But, you know, you have to say that, you know, if labor and birth are going to be successful, the mother has to be at that peak of readiness for the most efficient, effective labor and birth. Because, you know, just going back to our evolutionary model, you know, the longer the mother's in labor, the more she's at risk in the wild, right? If she had a 12-hour labor, that's 12 hours that a predator could come and, you know, kill her and the baby, yeah? Yeah, so the more effective and efficient labor and birth is, the more high chance of survival. So that's very much an evolutionary pressure, you could say. So this is evolutionary pressure for labor to be as efficient and effective as possible. And that's really a whole lot of readiness. I refer you to Chapter 2 in my Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing report because there's so many – preparations that happen and, and as I said a lot of them we don't even understand mm-hmm. but the oxytocin receptors in the uterus is a good example of that so going back to our hormonal gaps you know the mother who had a pre cesarean doesn't have that optimal number of oxytocin receptors in her uterus she's a little bit more at risk of postpartum hemorrhage for example um she hasn't had that preparation. The baby hasn't had that preparation. You know, I say, I say, a pre-labor cesarean for the baby is a bit like someone coming into you at night and you're all snuggled up in bed and you're all warm and cozy and suddenly, you know, the, the bedclothes are pulled back and it's cold and someone shining a bright light in your eyes and you're just not hormonally ready, you're not in the rhythm, you're not in the cycle of being ready to wake up. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the baby's not in that cycle of being ready to be born. Again, for the baby, there's a whole lot of pre-labour preparations that happen that ensure that the baby will will thrive through that intense process of labour and birth, and particularly the hypoxia, the low oxygen levels. Each time the mother's uterus squeezes, it squeezes the placenta. Hypoxia is inevitable for a mammalian baby coming out. Mm -hmm. So the baby has to be able to deal with that. Um, We talked about oxytocin being um, antioxidant as well uh, or help anti-inflammatory and helping the baby with that. But the baby also has to make that incredible, like miraculous transition to life outside the wood. The baby has to breathe where they've never breathed before. The baby has to digest where they've never digested before. The baby has to keep themselves warm as well. So there's all these preparations for the baby which actually do involve oxytocin to some extent, but also another hormonal system we call the catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline. So the baby, you know, the pre-labor preparations for the baby involve um, increases in the activity of that adrenaline noradrenaline system, and then in labor and birth, the baby has this surge of we call catecholamine surge um, that gets stronger and stronger as. Um, labor gets stronger and stronger and this like I was saying with the mother it's a superb design the stronger labor is the more of a catecholamine surge the baby has which basically protects the baby from the hypoxic um, effects of the contraction so it It um, it makes sure the baby's brain and heart are always well supplied with blood and oxygen. Mm -hmm. Um, It also helps the baby to use um, glucose as a metabolic fuel, even when oxygen levels are low. That's called anaerobic glycolysis. Mm -hmm. But it also is preparing the baby for life outside the womb. So it's starting to clear the lungs of liquid. It's opening up the airways. It's um, increasing lung surfactant, which is the lung lubricant, a whole lot of things, you know, because that's the first thing the baby has to do, right? The rest of the baby can catch up with digestion and heat regulation and stuff but the baby has to breathe straight away so there's a whole lot of investment in you know the newborn respiratory the breathing transition for the baby and that stuff starts well some people would say nine months earlier really but you know that the, the pre-labor preparations and in labor processes are critical to that and we know that there's a big hormonal gap for for newborn babies when they're born by a pre-labor cesarean and particularly with breathing they're much more likely to have breathing difficulties at birth you know even a healthy baby healthy full-term baby is more likely to have breathing difficulties Mm -hmm. mostly minor but some significant breathing difficulties as well and a pre cesarean baby is also more likely to be hypoglycemic to not be able to generate their own metabolic fuels because again they haven't had that help of the catecholamine surge and the other thing the pre cesarean baby the other hormonal consequence of this hormonal gap is they tend to get cold because they Mm -hmm. haven't had the the, it, it actually starts the burning of a, a a substance we call brown fat between the baby's shoulder blades. You know, you, you, all you've got to do is think about what does baby need to do, and your know, brother nature thought of it first because mm-hmm. all these systems place to make sure the baby makes this healthy transition and then of course the baby goes skin to skin on the mother you know the oxytocin helps mother and baby interact you know the baby has some energy this catecholamine surge makes sure the baby is wide-eyed and alert when they come out you know you see those babies that are born and they're like oh this is life let me at it they're wide-eyed and they're ready to go because of this catecholamine surge so um, all of those things come into play that that mean that when the baby doesn't have the pre-labor preparations when the baby doesn't have the processes of labor and birth then um there's, there's a big hormonal gap for the baby and all of those consequences mm. so what about epidurals okay so so we talked about oxytocin and i'm just going to go back to another kind of biological principle um if you go back to high school biology you, you might remember this term homeostasis mm-hmm. so homeostasis means keeping homeo the same stasis state. so we keep our state, our our metabolic, our physiological state the same in the face of external or even internal changes. So you and I sitting here, like our blood pressures even, our heart rates even, if something makes it go up for a minute, um, you know, we've got these processes that detect that and then there's also processes to bring it down. And that's called a negative feedback loop, keeps things the same. You know, it's a straight line, that's homeostasis, right? But labor is not a homeostatic event. We don't want things to stay the same in labor. They can't stay the same. Labor's an accelerating event so i call it the snowball of labor starts small gets bigger and bigger and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable and the reason for this is because we have positive feedback loops not negative feedback loops right if we had negative feedback loops nothing would ever happen right mm-hmm. so these positive feedback loops so there's several that we know about in labor probably many more because of that that huge acceleration that happens in labor right um yeah. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but it's really the same process. So basically what's happening is we talked about the release of oxytocin from the brain into the uterus causing these contractions. But then what happens is there's a specific nerve pathway from the uterus back to the brain that registers the sensations of the contractions the sensations of the contractions feed back to the brain saying release oxytocin. Yeah. So um, the brain then releases more oxytocin both to the uterus, yeah? yeah, so causing stronger contractions, more sensations, more trigger, more oxytocin release, but also within the brain. So remember we mentioned the stronger labor is, the more oxytocin, the more the laboring mama of any mammalian species gets this help, gets this natural pain relief, natural and connection in the brain. So that's what's happening all the time. And that's what's or one of the feedback loops that's fueling the, the acceleration of labor that's helping the snowboard to get bigger and bigger, right? Mm-hmm. But that feedback loop, and by the way, if you want to look at this, it's on my website. Look at my blog, my epidural blog. Um, it's got a little picture of this. Mm-hmm. So this feedback loop, depends on the sensations from the uterus to the brain and the problem with an epidural is it's very effective at abolishing those sensations and if we don't have those sensations we don't have the feedback loop so the mother's oxytocin levels go down we know this from studies that have been done measuring it but the other thing the other hormonal gap that happens is she's not getting the release in her brain Mm -hmm. so all those things we talked about oxytocin doing calming connecting pain relieving um switching on reward and pleasure centers, and in fact, a couple of other things that brain oxytocin does. Um, it changes the mother's personality, right? When you've had a normal physiological birth, after that, you become more relaxed, less tense, um, less muscular tension, less, psych- less psychological tension. Um, you also become more sociable. You're looking for more social interactions. And um, we think that happens through the release of oxytocin in the brain during labor and birth. And all of those things are going to help the mother to care for her baby, to breastfeed her baby, to have a relationship, to bond, et cetera. So that's one thing. So we know that, well, the, the things that support this hypothesis about oxytocin is when women have an epidural, they don't get those personality changes. When mm-hmm. I mean, you can probably guess that women with a pre cesarean don't get those personality changes either. So that's one thing. The other thing that happens that I haven't mentioned, you know, it's kind of magical, this, this you could say, marinating of the mother's brain and oxytocin during labor and birth. The other thing that happens is it actually switches on in some way we don't understand, the mother's capacity to release oxytocin during skin-to-skin contact Okay. I'll just explain a little bit about that. So, you know, the mother straight after birth, you know, in the 65 million years of evolution, all other mammals' blueprint for us is that the baby stays on the mother's body, comes straight onto the mother's body. The baby crawls up the mother's body um, using uh, primitive reflexes, what we were taught as primitive reflexes, the stepping move, reflex. The baby finds the nipple because it smells like amniotic fluid and the baby um, massages the nipple and then in the end the baby attaches. That's kind of normal physiology. right? if that doesn't happen, there's a hormonal gap, right? Mm-hmm. But in response to that, the mother releases huge amounts of oxytocin. I mean, we talked about the feedback loop. So you can imagine the feedback loop going faster and faster, you know, stronger and stronger as labor progresses. And that pushing stage, those very intense sensations of pushing, <laughs> some of you might remember, um, release these huge amounts of oxytocin in the body and in the brain, you know, three to four times what it was at the start of labor, as far as, as, far as we can measure, but probably even higher because it's hard to measure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But also, um, in that, that hour after birth, when mother and baby are together and the mother's been through a physiological labor and birth, from that peak at birth, the mother's levels can be even 10 times higher. So, there's massive capacity to release oxytocin in skin to skin contact with her baby. And <laughs> I'm going to have to skip forward a bit here to say a little bit about that. You know, at that time, it critically saves the mother's life, basically. It, it, it makes her uterus contract, which seals off all those blood vessels that are kind of torn as the, ba- as the placenta gets. Its birth and it also um uh, opens up the blood vessels on her chest wall and forms a natural warming mechanism for the baby, which is part of the magic of skin-to-skin. That the baby who's in skin-to-skin contact with the mother is warmer than anything you could wrap the baby in, any heater you could put the baby un- under, because there's actually the the interaction between mother and baby. And again, mother nature's superb design. The cooler the baby is, the more the mother's chest wall pulses heat to the baby. Mm. The, co- the warmer the baby is, the less it pulses heat. So it's there's this process we call mutual regulation. There's lots of examples of it but basically this oxytocin peak after birth what the mother's oxytocin peak in that hour after birth is critical for the mother and critical for the baby right but if the mother doesn't have it seems like from the research that we've looked at if the mother doesn't have a physiological labor and birth and these brain peaks of oxytocin then she actually doesn't have that capacity to release oxytocin to the same extent after labor and birth so we can see that after epidurals we can see that after pre-labor caesareans as well yeah. so those are two things that we can measure that there's a hormonal gaps with epidurals. Um, there's also evidence that, um, it's harder for the mother to bond with her baby. She doesn't find the baby as pleasurable or rewarding. And again, this goes back to that brain, um, the, the hormonal gap in the brain of the, the reward and pleasure centers, you know. So um, a couple of studies, one found that the mother, when the mother had, had an epidural, she put her baby into the nursery more often than mothers who hadn't had an epidural. She didn't want her baby with her so much. And again, that's not a reward and pleasure center, you know, effect. And it was actually in relation to how much local anesthetic she had in the epidural. which is exactly what would numb this whole feedback loop, right, numbs the sensations. Mm. Um, another study found that women didn't find didn't, um, found their babies more intense and more bothersome at one month. So at one month, obviously no drugs in the baby, no drugs in the mother, but there's a hormonal gap there where the mother and baby haven't had, well, this is this is the interpretation that we have around it, haven't had those peaks of oxytocin in labour and birth and had those um, pleasure and reward centres turned on. And, you know, it's interesting, I was talking to a midwife the other day and she said to me, when I go into a room after a woman had an epidural I don't get that same sense of euphoria um, as as when a mother hasn't and again you know um, something else I I just add about oxytocin there is it actually can be transmitted between individuals so there's this term pheromone you know may have, may have heard of that term it's a hormonal like substance that gets transmitted between individuals so animal studies have shown that it can be transmitted from one individual that's given synthetic oxytocin to another individual that isn't given it so you know my interpretation of that is you know that hour after birth when the mother has we've just described these huge peak levels of oxytocin then everyone in the room can feel euphoric like the mother the baby the partner the midwife like it's just a total buzz and actually it's kind of addictive because these reward and pleasure centers we <laughs> We're talking about actually, addict- addictive centres as well. You know, it's meant to make us positively addicted to our babies, but everyone can get positively addicted to physiological birth at that moment as well. So what this midwife is saying to me is that I didn't feel that physio, that pheromonal oxytocin, mm-hmm. when the mothers had an epidural. So there is a hormonal gap there, but all is not lost. We'll talk about how to fill in those hormonal gaps in a minute. Yeah. But the other major intervention, major interventions, really are induction of labour, and we don't have a lot of research on that. Um. Some of our research is suggesting that um, prostaglandins may interfere with oxytocin. We're gonna to have to wait till we get all that um, data together. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously the baby and mother don't have those full physiological preparations. Does it, could it in fact breast, impact breastfeeding? Because that's of course the other hormonal oxytocin thing that has to happen after birth. And you now there's really not good research on that, which is really concerning when you look at the number of women being induced, like it's 30% or more, more for mothers having their first babies. So, you know, it's really quite um, concerning that we don't know, you know, does induction impact breastfeeding? Um, does synthetic oxytocin, that's often given. So often when women are induced, um, they may be given a prostaglandin, a local tablet or pessary or um, it, it internally to ripen the cervix, which kind of prepares and does some of that preparation. And then they're or, um, usually at some stage given synthetic oxytocin, which, um like all the things we've been saying about oxytocin contracts the uterus um one thing to say about synthetic oxytocin is that it doesn't you know we said it's made in the brain um goes down to the uterus you know causes the rhythmic contractions of labor because it goes from the brain into the body but actually oxytocin whether it's the the normal one you know the physiological one our natural endogenous one or whether it's the synthetic exogenous one from the outside it doesn't cross back into the brain yeah so so synthetic oxytocin doesn't have all those calming connecting pain relieving effects so but it can cause strong strong uterine contractions that can be very painful and very stressful so one of the problems with synthetic oxytocin is you know it's very commonly women need an epidural after having it Um, because of that you know, hormonal gap, basically, they're getting these strong contractions at the beginning of labor before they've had a chance to build up their own natural pain relief, like oxytocin levels in the brain. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, if a woman has an epidural, she's got this oxytocin hormonal gap where oxytocin levels go down. So often they're given synthetic oxytocin. So epidurals and synthetic oxytocin is probably um, – the most impactful of hormones rather than just synthetic oxytocin by itself but again you know there's not a lot of research in this area which is really concerning when so many women are having it we don't even know what the you know what the longer term outcomes are for for mothers and babies from these interventions beyond the kind of things that i've mentioned
0: so is there anything women can do to fill in these hormonal gaps so you know what we've talked about really is these
1: oxytocin gaps and you know they're happening in the brain and so What we need to do to fill in these gaps is increase brain oxytocin. So, you know, injecting synthetic oxytocin isn't going to make it. If we injected it into the brain, it actually would. Oh, yeah. um, for example, I <laughs> did studies um, administering epidural to laboring sheep, and they found yes, there was this deficit in brain oxytocin that had the mothers not bond with their babies, you know, especially the first time mothers, mm-hmm. um, big reduction in, in bonding there. Um, but when they injected oxytocin or synthetic oxytocin into those mothers' brains, it, um, it filled in that hormonal gap so the hormonal gap is in the brain yeah so we want to do things that naturally produce oxytocin so skin to skin is um is one and breastfeeding is the other so basically these hormonal gaps can be filled in by skin to skin and breastfeeding and something just to go back to some a general principle so we've talked about how um how there's all this preparation happening for example you know that uterine oxytocin receptors is one example so that when the mother releases oxytocin and labor she doesn't have to do a lot of it mm-hmm. she doesn't even have to do it for very long you know you could have a, a short labor you know an hour and a half um, and still all of these things are going to happen because of that release of brain oxytocin based on on the foundation of the mother's readiness right so it's you know you could call it a biological window of opportunity yeah mm-hmm. but if we miss that window of opportunity it's going to take a lot more work to fill in that hormonal gap so for example I talked about that study that showed that when women had an epidural they didn't get the personality changes straight after birth now in this study they followed the women up and those women had been exclusively breastfeeding for three to six months did get the personality changes because every breastfeed they release oxytocin which is the letdown reflex Mm -hmm. and that's shifting the brain incrementally but you know you've got to do it for much longer right you 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 miss that window of opportunity it's not going to be as effective and i'll just share an anecdote about that so this was a a mama who'd had two natural births and the third one she had to have a pre-labor cesarean for safety reasons Mm -hmm. and she said when i got my baby my baby felt different so all the things we've been saying, the baby didn't have those peaks of oxytocin. The mother didn't have those peaks of oxytocin. The mother wasn't as warm, you could say. Mm. Uh, the baby didn't have that catecholamine surge. You know, prelabor cesarean babies are often a bit drowsy. They're just not ready to wake up, to socialize, to feed. They haven't had that whole wake-up preparation, you know, for life outside the womb. So they'll get there. They will get there. But, it's, you know, this mother said, you know my instinct was to have my baby skin to skin with me, And after three days of skin to skin, my baby felt the same. Oh, wow. So you know an hour and a half of labor, that would have all worked because there was this window of opportunity, this biological window, you could say. Mm-hmm. but when because she missed that, her and her baby both missed it. It took much longer, much more dedication, three days of skin to skin to catch up with it. So basically, skin to skin and breastfeeding as early as possible, you know there's some really great um, Really great um, processes that hospitals are using to make sure that the mother and baby aren't separated after a cesarean, the baby's baby or babies can go straight on the mother's body after birth um, or as soon as possible after birth. There's all kind of sterile feels and, you know, extra hands and stuff. But it can be figured out. You know, there's a great paper called The Natural Caesarean. You can look up Family Centered Caesarean. You know, there's really great people are are working around that because we're beginning to understand the importance of skin to skin. So skin to skin um, as early as possible after the birth and breastfeeding you know giving the baby the opportunity because again especially after pre caesarean, so is there and the baby's drowsy they're not going to be quite ready for it so we need to give the baby prolonged opportunities to wake up to figure out where they are mm-hmm. what they need to do you know and there's this whole for the baby kind of instinctive program that will that will have them crawl up to the to the nipple and suckle, and I remember, you know, when I was at medical school, we learned about these primitive reflexes, so called, but we didn't actually know what they were for. Like the stepping reflex, when you put uh, a, a newborn baby's foot on the, on the on a surface, it'll step it. Yeah. Um, there's the there's the there's the um, rooting reflex. There's other reflexes that actually design there, and they last for you know six weeks or so, or longer in some babies. That will help the baby to crawl up and self-attach. And actually, this has been used um, by some lactation consultants of the baby's first breastfeed didn't go so well the baby still has all of those capacities during the early weeks so sometimes put mama and baby together in a warm room maybe in water you know let the baby crawl up and actually reprogram that that um that uh, limbic system program, you know, the, the the baby's instinctive program to find the nipple and suckle, and it's really, you know, it's quite extraordinary, really. That one we didn't put that together, you know, when yeah. I was at medical school. Like, you know, what what is this for? We thought it was just kind of random. We could use it to test the baby, but in fact, you know, was it, it was, was it was it was you know momentous that we discovered that human babies can do what every other mammalian baby can, do, which is find the nipple and suckle and self-attach. So yeah. it's good. we look a bit stupid for really. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think. I think, you know, because we took the baby away and you know, yeah. even just a brief separation, even just taking the baby away to measure it really disrupts the baby's pro you know, this, this process of um of the breast call and self-attachment. You know, drugs for the mother that pass to the baby, you know, interfere with this as well. Opioid drugs particularly can make you know, they go straight through the placenta, they can make the baby drowsy. So yeah, skin okay. to skin contact immediately after birth increases the success of breastfeeding. We haven't even talked about that, but you know, it's one package really it's it's designed there to bond mother and baby to release oxytocin but it's also the ideal start to breastfeeding you know so Mm -hmm. that skin to skin after birth you know even after a cesarean where you know the baby's drowsy the mother's drowsy there's not that release of oxytocin generally um uh you know that will still benefit long-term breastfeeding so i think when we get that big body of evidence it's kind of easier to 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 put it into practice. I mean, yeah. part of what my um, passion is, and what I'm doing right now, and my PhD is really getting all these studies together and giving a you know incontrovertible um, body of evidence that says you know if we do this we get that so I think we haven't kind of put the joined the dots together in lots of ways and you know one of the ways I look at it guys I think that you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago you know we thought breastfeeding was kind of an optional add-in and it was kind of a little bit animalistic and babies were just as well off on on formula but now we know you know the more research we do the more evidence we have the more we want to support breastfeeding so my hope and my prayer it's really that we have that same approach to physiological birth, that we really can see the benefits of physiological birth and we're going to do everything we can to support it or at least to fill in the hormonal gaps, you know, because sometimes, as we said, sometimes, you know, it's a cesarean and epidural, synthetic oxytocin induction, sometimes these things are, are important. Mm-hmm. But you know, if we look from a hormonal perspective, you know, if there's a gap, how can we fill it in? And then really giving that mama and baby all the support that they need, you know, lactation consultant, skin-to-skin contact, you know, when there's a potential um hormonal gap that may mean that mother and baby get off on the kind of the back foot you could say Mm.
0: and skin to skin can help with skin colonization is that correct
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what we found out, and this kind of came from a whole lot of new research around the microbiome. So you may know this term microbiome. So the small life, literally, that lives on us. So all those you know, bacteria, fungi, everything that are our friends. In fact, there's, I think, 10 times more of them than there are actually cells in our body. So we have a microbiome on our skin and our mouth and our vagina and our bowel and our gut, pretty much everywhere we have a microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens, one of the momentary, Momentous things about birth, apart from everything we've just said, is that the baby has, does, virtually doesn't have a microbiome in the womb. There's a little bit of controversy. Is there a small amount of bugs on the placenta in the womb, like you know? But but the general consensus is the baby comes out pretty much, you know, a clean slate. Pretty much no bacteria um, so the processes of labor and birth you know once the membranes have ruptured then all everything that's in the mother's vagina can access the baby you know, even before birth so all these healthy bacteria the mother's healthy gut flora will start to colonize the baby and as the baby comes out the baby swallows the baby's mouth is open and all of these bacteria go into the gut you know so they colonize the baby's gut so in the ideal situation the mother's got a healthy gut flora the baby's colonized with a healthy gut flora and then also as the baby comes out out, you know, skin to skin, the baby's skin is getting colonised by the mother's skin. So it's kind of like a closed loop. It's all within the baby's environment and the mother's environment. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is if we give birth outside our environment, um, you know, the baby can be colonized with bugs that don't belong to the mother. You know, the baby can be colonized with the hospital bugs. Mm -hmm. Um, The baby, you know, and breastfeeding as well is a a transmission of the microbiome. You know, the baby that's not breastfed can be colonized with other bugs as well. So, and of course, you know, what's obvious, as you said, is if the baby's born by cesarean, especially if the baby's had no labor, then the baby doesn't have that colonization either so they've actually followed up children born by prelabor cesarean over the first year of life and looked at what happens with their gut microbiome and they found that not surprisingly really the baby doesn't get colonized with mother's gut flora so much as the mother's skin flora yeah. and you know the, the 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 microbiome i think of it like a garden like if you're gardening the first thing that you plant is the thing that's going to take hold. And that's really true for our guts as well. So the first thing, the first bugs that come in there are going to be the ones that really take hold. And we can kind of tweak them a little bit, but it's really hard to change your microbiome i mean the only thing we can do you know people might have heard of this is, is a faecal transplant actually giving the whole because it's not just one bug or two bugs it's the whole forest of bugs we could say you know just changing out one tree isn't going to make a difference changing out one plant in your garden isn't going to change your whole garden so giving a whole kind of Forest transplant with a, um, a fecal transplant is one way that does work. But short of that, it's hard to change it. So, you know, that's another really powerful reason for vaginal birth, you know, or for some labor at least. Um, and, you know, um, there was a paper actually out of Holland, you know, where they do. Uh, there's a lot of home birth, and they found when they tested the baby's microbiome that the babies with the best microbiome were the babies that were born at home and, and exclusively breastfed. So that's kind of like the microbiome gold standard, you could say. And anything else is a microbiome gap. And to be honest, the problem is it's quite a new area of research. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's it's all these new techniques we have to to identify and recognise gut flora, like you know, um, 10, 20 years ago, we didn't even know what most of the gut flora was. Like we could identify a few little bugs through looking at the microscope and growing them. But now we have these um genetic tools or we can set behind all these bugs that we didn't know what the hell they are and then name them and then we can look for them Mm -hmm. so yeah so there is kind of in amongst all of that you know we really haven't had enough time to do the research to see how we can fill in that microbiome gap once it's created but definitely skin to skin and breastfeeding is going to help that as well and of course the other thing that we haven't talked about is you know if the mother can't do skin to skin then the partner um the partner skin to skin is still going to be that same kind. of domestic local environment for the baby. So that's kind of like the another great backup system. And, of course, you know, it was interesting. They, um, they did a study that looked at, we talked about pre-labor cesarean and oxytocin release. So they actually did a study where they randomized um the baby just the baby had skin to skin with her mother for I think the first twenty minutes and then they randomized the baby to skin to skin with her mother or the father at that point, and both of them actually released a small amount of oxytocin, not those peaks we're talking mm-hmm. about in um in labor and birth the ten times or even twice as much, but little small elevations in oxytocin both the father and the mother. So mm-hmm. you know it's a um, it's a good experience for the father as well and he can he can be involved although you know the, the again the genetic hormonal blueprint is skin to skin on the mother so you know it kind of has to be a good reason to take the baby away
0: have you heard anything about vaginal seeding and whether or not that's a viable option for c-section mums
1: yes that's a that's a tricky one and and i haven't read it in the last couple of months but you know it seems like a good idea to fill in the hormonal gaps Mm -hmm. um so you know that's something people have done and tried out i think there are some studies some randomized controlled trials happening with it but i haven't seen the outcomes from that because you know we don't really know what the outcome is and for example if the mother had group b strep for example which is not such a friendly organism that was for the baby so we kind of you know we have these ideas of how to fill in the microbiome gap but probably we need a little bit more research around that so yeah that's not my area so much (laughs) it's more hormones but but i know that there are randomized controlled trials, which is basically the, the highest level of evidence. So basically, they get a group of mothers and babies who agree to participate in this. Some mothers and babies, they do the vaginal seeding. Some mothers and babies, they don't. Ideally, they use a, a placebo. So maybe, you know, a, a swab that that hasn't been um, in, in contact with the mother's vagina to seed the baby. And then they see what the outcomes are. And really, the thing is, we need to know not the short-term outcomes, but the long-term outcomes, what happens to that baby over the first year or even longer what happens to that baby over the first few years so it's going to take a little while to gather that data yeah, yeah we're not sure at the moment and i think it's a bit early to say everyone should do it it's going to be yeah, great right. um i really recommend the um the website microbirth they made this fantastic film a few years about, about the microbiome and birth and they're really up to up to date with the latest research on that and they have some free um, programs as well you can join up to plus a lot of in-depth uh, resources, a lot of in depth programs um, for women, for health professionals, or some of the experts around the world. So, okay, awesome. micro birth, I recommend that.
0: Perfect. Thank you for that information. What is your opinion on ultrasounds?
1: Yes, well, you know, the trouble is in medicine, everything seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> And then you know, like, because I've, I've been, you know, it's a long time since I did my medical training, and there's been so many ways, Like when I was at medical school, um, the um, w- prior to that, people had been using barbiturates for sleeping pills, you know. And then we had these fantastic new drugs come along called the benzodiazepines, right? Mm. Valium, Mogadon, all of those things. Yeah. It was like the best thing, you know. These are they're not addictive, they don't have problems, you know. We can ditch the we can ditch the barbiturates, and here's this great new thing. And then a few years later, you go, oh, oh dear, you know this is um you know this, this is kind of you know we're seeing that the downsides of that as well so Yeah yeah that, that's the problem is the uh, you know we, we need really some kind of long-term research on that so in, in relation to ultrasound you know it seems like a really good idea at the time like you know we've got all this mechanism to see the baby in the womb and there's all these things we can do that will help us and then certainly in some situations ultrasound is beneficial you know you can see if there's one baby in the womb or two babies you can see where the placenta is mm-hmm. in early pregnancy you can see where the baby's alive or whether there's going to be a miscarriage so you know there are benefits to it but the problem I have with ultrasound is, you know, well, several problems really, but, you know, the routine use of ultrasound, you know, the the latest – it's called the Cochrane Collaboration which is the highest level of evidence possible which includes all these randomised control trials we talked about, didn't find any benefit from ultrasound mm-hmm. for mothers or babies from routine ultrasound. So, you know, and also, you know, I don't really believe that we have the long-term safety data on it. There were, you know, it first came out we did some safety studies and we did find some subtle changes but now the problem is we're using much, much higher levels of ultrasound exposure. The The rules change and the machines changed in the early 90s and now we're using much higher doses and we don't have evidence for that. And, mm-hmm. you know, is it is it a good thing to do, you know, on a population basis for every mother and baby when, you know, it, it's not useful for most, you know, not doesn't make a difference to care or well-being or outcome for most mothers and babies. And also we don't have long-term safety um safety data about it. And I just, you know, one of the reasons I got curious about this is because when I was working as a GP um, with pregnant women, you know, I'd noticed when I put the Doppler on um, the mother's belly, the babies would kind of get wriggly and move. There's actually studies about this. You know, the baby actually didn't want to be exposed to it. So there's something happening in there. You know, we don't really know what it is. There was one study that suggested that the the ultrasound going through the liquid could slow the wave down to make it audible, to make it actually a sound for the baby. Again, that's the only study we don't know about that. But there's mm-hmm. something, there's something not right. But of course, every woman's got to make up her own mind about that. And I'm not saying there's harm from real single ultrasound if you need the information, for example. But I guess the other thing, I have, and this was my own personal um, approach as well, is you know we we are the experts in our babies. We have this line of communication with our babies. Our babies are inside our body. There's no closer connection between two people possible, right? So yeah. we have this physical connection through the placenta you know the baby's sending us messages our bodies responding but i really believe we have this kind of psychic connection with our babies as well we have this input you know imagine being glued on to someone for nine months right you get to know each other pretty well and you'd probably start to think their thoughts right so I think, I believe we have this connection with our babies and, you know, our babies are sending us messages, you know, people talk about knowing when there's a problem with their baby, knowing when when their baby feels okay. So, you know, before ultrasound, before any of these tests, that's what had us take the actions to keep our babies well, to survive and thrive, you know, in evolutionary terms. So I really believe there's this kind of psychic connection between mother and baby that's deeper, that we haven't actually looked at. and. Mm. You know, I think the problem with the many of these tests, and and the reason personally that I didn't have an ultrasound, or one reason, is because I wanted to be the expert on my baby. I wanted that connection with my baby. I wanted to know when my baby moved, and it's interesting because you know that that movement of the baby, the quickening, they call it. That's kind of when you go, oh my god, there's a baby in there, you know. <laughs> so it happens naturally, and we're kind of, you know, for me anyway having someone with an ultrasound machine looking at my baby, telling me that on a machine that's external to myself was a different experience from feeling the baby move in my belly. And, you know, also as a doctor myself, you know, I'd seen – situations where you know you have a have a kind of test like an ultrasound oh it's not quite 100% there might be something there come back next week come back next week come back next week and and after a while you know they know more about your baby than you do and they become the experts mm-hmm. and there's a lot of false positives you know a lot of worry that women have in labor I um, mean again it's something you've got to decide yourself like do you want to know if there's a problem with your baby in labor you know if you do want to know that your baby has a congenital abnormality for example because certainly you can learn that I mean it's not it's not good news and generally there's nothing you can do about it except to terminate your pregnancy. So if you think that that's what you would do, yes, that's a, that's a reason to have it. But most abnormalities you can't do anything about. You know, few of them, you know, maybe being in a tertiary hospital would be helpful at birth, but not necessarily. Some of them the baby's going to, not going to survive any rate. So and these are all kind of philosophical questions mm-hmm. that you might or might not want to ask yourself before you go for an ultrasound because you might get information that you don't want. Yeah, we go in there thinking it's all going to be fine. We'll see the baby. It's all fun. We take our partners. But you know, sometimes it's not like that. And, you know, I mean, for example, the position of the placenta is a good one. You know, often in that early pregnancy ultrasound, the placenta looks a bit low and we go, oh, you've got a you know placenta previa, low-lying placenta. But almost always, you know, 90-something percent of the time, it, it kind of um moves up you know the the uterus changes and it grows in different ways and and it's not a problem at birth but you know you get told that and and you know in mid-pregnancy and you're worrying oh my god i'm gonna have to have a cesarean what's going on and it kind of takes the shine off your pregnancy and you know in the end is it worth it you know like for me it wasn't so everybody's got to make this decision for themselves it's totally not one size fits all but you know it's good to think through what are the consequences of this because it might be a good consequence or it might not be and you know once you've got that information you can't not know it anymore
0: and then those emotions could potentially stall labor
1: any worry is like goes back to that evolutionary principle you know if we're not feeling safe yeah. it's hard to go into labor it's basically telling our body this is not a safe place to give birth so you really you know that's one of the things that's so important um, in pregnancy and at the end of pregnancy as well as really reduce your stress levels take time out you know relax chill out as much as you possibly can whatever your situation is because that's going to help your hormones but in fact there was one study that looked at um, or several some studies that looked at women's responses and interviewed women you know and when women have had this so for example once Scenario might be you have an ultrasound scan, they think there might be something wrong with your baby, you have more tests, and it turns out your baby's okay, right? So it was a false positive. So those women that had that, you know, when their baby was born were still worried. They wanted the pediatrician to come and check the baby. They wanted lots and lots of reassurance that their baby was okay.
0: Yeah.
1: And there was another study showing that it, that actually, that experience, even though the baby was okay, actually impacted the bonding between mother and baby in the longer term. I think it was about one year. So, you know, we don't really, it's a its a delicate process, our connection with our baby, especially if it's our first pregnancy, you know, we want to do things that are going to um, support a bond with our baby. And look, for some people, ultrasound might do that, but it's hard to say for sure. You know, make that decision for yourself and look at all of these kinds of issues. You know, any of those prenatal testing, I don't know if I put that, I've got, I wrote a whole thing on prenatal testing, you know, the new tests that women are having the, um, The self DNA, yeah, those tests, those tests. Again, you know, you could find out something useful, but you can't do anything about it. Like, you know, I mean, maybe if you decide if your baby did have Down syndrome, would be the first thing that you would actually terminate the pregnancy. Well, that's a good reason, but there's a whole lot of other things you could be told that might be okay or might not be okay. So, you know, think about worry you know we Mm. don't really want to be any more worried than we have to be you know there's a whole industry designed to test everything about us and our pregnancy and and basically the, the 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 you know the the consequence of that is we end up worrying you know and you can't do anything about it and how's that experience in pregnancy when you know actually our hormonal blueprint from everything we've talked about is to have high oxytocin levels in pregnancy you know our body's trying to help us to we actually straight we have some inbuilt stress reduction we we're, we're less stress responsive in pregnancy cuz you know it's so important that we don't stress any more than we have to in pregnancy and I'm not you know it's it's a tricky message cuz obviously sometimes things are stressful and stressful events happen but really prioritizing your own emotional well-being and you know in traditional cultures that's what they did you know think beautiful thoughts the, the Hindu people say you know like they protected pregnant women from the kind of stresses and worries that we kind of got this whole system that that generates for women so yeah, yeah that, that's one of my concerns really it's called the nocebo effect you know we think we're doing something helpful but it actually it can have a negative effect so so many so many things to consider and make conscious choices about. Mm.
0: So I guess the overall theme is that Mother Nature has got this. She's covered all ground. We just need to surrender and get out the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mother Nature has been doing it for a long time, you know, and the more you can support those processes and, you know, relax and, and you know, gestate your baby, you know, mm. <laughs> um, the better it is, yeah. yeah
0: yeah dr buckley for the women that are still conflicted over this is home birth safe
1: yes it is safe you know and we've got lots and lots of evidence nowadays and when we don't have that randomized control trial in fact they tried to do that with home birth and then they found 11 women that were willing to be randomized to home or hospital but there's lots and lots of home birth studies showing good outcomes for mothers and babies in fact um good outcomes for the babies and better outcomes for the mothers you know your chance of having a cesarean is 5 to 10% in most studies um, about versus 30-something percent, major abdominal surgery, you know, your chance of having induction, epidurals, all of those things, which obviously it would have to be transferred to hospital to have, but your chance of needing those things is significantly lower. And, you know, also, as I said, it's one of those models of care in many places where you do get that one-on-one ring-free care as well. So, you know, me, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor. My husband's a medical doctor. You know, we were totally convinced that home birth was a safe option for us and all the evidence since then and has really, you know, reinforced that. Mm -hmm. But, of course, you know, it's really what's right for you. You There's no one-size-fits-all, you know, and if you're really going to be nervous at home, then choose a hospital birth, you know. But you want to, you know, there's kind of two aspects of safety. There's, like, the mental thing where we do all the research and data and this research, you know, that says that. That's a kind of mental idea of safety. And then there's this middle-brain, limbic system idea of safety, you know, that private, safe and unobserved that we're talking about where, you know, it's, it's it's that... brain function that has us kind of prowl around in labor looking for the safest spot you know that has us lock ourselves in the bathroom or the toilet like the smallest room away from people when we're in labor that has us you know or maybe wanting to have other people with us that that we know and trust in labor you know that limbic system so you know, you've really if you're going to hospital, you've really got to protect your limbic system, your limbic brain, you know. You've got to protect it from the strange smells, strange noises, strange people, you know, all of those things. So how can you do that? So, you know, if you go to a, a class, I'm sure they'll teach you lots of things, but you know, oxytocin is related to the the smell. The, the olfactory system so you know taking familiar smells whether it's you know as simple as taking your own pillow to bury your head in taking the t-shirt of your partner that you can bury your head in you know how can you protect yourself from the sights? you know these unfamiliar sights. I mean you know every animal seeks a familiar place to give birth so if you're going into an unfamiliar place you've got to protect yourself from that sensory input you know can you wear a mask can you you know can you stop that sensory input can you find something to focus on mm-hmm. what, what about the noises can you play yourself a hypnobirthing tape you know can you can you you know can you um what do you say limit the sensory input that would trigger your limbic system um, if you're going into hospital and the last hint i would say is that you know we talked about those positive feedback loops of labor when we talked about the snowball of labor right so labor starts small becomes bigger and bigger and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable when these feedback systems are going very strongly so You know, the corollary of that is if you go into labor, into hospital early in labor before it's got established, before the snowball's got the momentum, it can throw off labor. You know, you can stop, you know, and that's quite a common experience women have. They're laboring at home, get in the car, they go to hospital, they put their foot through the door and everything stops, you know, or slows down. That's a recognized phenomenon, right? So Mm -hmm. on the other hand at the end of labor when the snowball's so big it's unstoppable for hormonal reasons sometimes stress can actually make birth go faster you know if you think about an animal giving birth in the wild at the beginning of labor if the i call it the saber tooth tiger effect if the saber tooth tiger turns up at the beginning of labor of course it's better to stop labor have the space to run away find a safe place etc but if the saber tooth tiger turns up at the end of labor it's going to be much labor's virtually unstoppable it's actually going to be better to give birth quickly and easily, scoop your baby up and run away, and that's what can happen at the end of labour. So a bit of stress or the stress of going into hospital can actually accelerate labour at the end of labour. And, you know, women get through the doors and give birth, often quite soon, so... If you are going to hospital, it's very kind to your hormones to stay in your own familiar environment until is so big it's unstoppable. And, you know, you might know that from having a doula with you, having your own midwife. And when I do workshops about this, one midwife said to me, I know it's time for the woman to go to hospital when she can't remember her own phone number. (laughs) Because basically you get into this altered state, all these chemicals, as I say, all this oxytocin is marinating your brain and you're in this altered state of consciousness. You know, you're going out to the state you're going to labor land you know you know that's part of this process of labor and birth so the more deeply you are in that the further you know it kind of matches how far along in labor you are so yeah laboring at home as much as possible would be my would be my best advice if you are going to hospital awesome
0: advice thank you and just a last quick question did you do anything special with your placentas
1: Yes, with three of my babies, I actually had a lotus birth where oh. we don't cut the cord and we keep the baby and the placenta attached to each other until the cord drops away at the umbilicus. And it took six days to, oh, I can't even remember now, something mm. like four to, four to six days, I think. I think the shortest was four, which was my last one and the longest to eight days maybe with my, yeah, okay. my, my first one, my first lotus birth. But, you know, it was a great process. I mean, it's all, again, these are all choices you can make. I mean, the good thing about lotus birth, one thing is they can't cut the cord. No one's going to cut the cord, which can means your baby gets all the benefit of the extra blood um, in the third stage. You'll have to go to my website and read the, the blog about that or the article about that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, they can't take your baby away if the cord's not cut. Nobody can take your baby over to examine it, like I was taught to do in hospitals. Mm-hmm. So you know they can't take your baby away. But the other thing is that um, when you're, you know, when the baby is connected to the placenta, well, first of all, it stops the baby from being passed around. And I think that, personally, I mean, again, you've got to decide what's right for you. But personally, I don't think it was good for me to have my babies passed around. It kind of interfered with my bonding to some extent. It probably confused the baby because the baby. I mean, imagine, you know, nine months in the womb, no smells, a little bit of taste from the amniotic fluid, and then suddenly coming into an environment of smells, you know, and. And trying to learn those smells, like I imagine it would be quite confusing for the baby. So I think, you know, minimizing the number of people that that contact the baby in those early days is good. So lotus birth contributes to that. But the, the best thing is you can't take your baby to the supermarket with a, with a yes. lotus, you know, you have to stay home in that quiet space. Um, and it was very beautiful. You know, we cared for the placenta. And then when the placenta came away in its own time, it was kind of like a whole nother birth. It was very, it was very beautiful.
0: So special. Dr. Sarah Buckley, wow, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today and sharing all of this compelling information that has honestly just completely blown my mind. I'm feeling incredibly honored and grateful to have you on the show, so thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, my pleasure sky, and yeah, just sending lots of love and good wishes to every all the expectant parents out there and you know, my final message is, you know, trust your body, trust your baby, you know, you are mother nature's superb design
0: unfortunately that brings us to the end of the show guys I'm sure we could have gone on for hours chatting about all things birth this interview is full to the brim with fascinating and useful information but one that really stood out for me personally was how we can fill in the hormonal gaps created from interventions because as you all know I've had two births well technically three that have been full of all the interventions so it really clicked with me when Sarah spoke about the research behind skin to skin it's something i still do to this day with all of my babies but i did it even more so when they were little freshies outside it was really cool to hear how much that simple bonding practice would have played a huge role in my ability to not only bond with my babies but be a better mother in the process just mind-blowing how incredibly designed our bodies are I really hope you guys get a tremendous amount out of this incredibly wise woman and please do yourself a favour and head over to her website sarabuckley.com to read more in depth about all of the topics we covered here today plus more. I would love to hear what you guys took away from this episode over on the PBA Instagram and I'll see you guys next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia.